Good afternoon. Uh, I'm in a Baptist church. Could you respond, please? Good afternoon. I'm from a Baptist church. Let me say it that way. It's good to see all of you this afternoon. Eric, thank you for the kind words. Let's, uh, Let's begin our time with prayer. So would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, I praise you for gathering us together today, and I thank you for sending your son Jesus to rescue a people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and nation through the blood of the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the Bible. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that illuminates your word to us. So we pray that you would do this good work in us now, that you would illuminate your word so that we might understand it, that we would repent where that's appropriate, and that by your grace we would live faithfully for you and love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In a 2016 poll, 54% of Americans said that while we pay more attention to what we eat these days, we actually eat worse than we used to. So even though we're paying more attention, we're, it's not paying off in health. We're eating worse than we used to. And different food movements have arisen to try to deal with this problem. Uh, these food movements say that if you do this or that, uh, you can live a better, healthier life than you have in the past. And you've probably heard of a lot of these. Keto diet, going paleo, eating vegan... These are very familiar in the grocery store now, too. Now, one of the other proposed solutions that you've probably heard of is whole eating, in which you eat unprocessed foods like vegetables. Uh, You eat those instead of eating processed foods like Pop-Tarts, something like that. Now, the logic goes that for most of human existence, we as humans ate real foods, and we lived happy and healthy lives. So if we take practical steps to eliminate those processed foods and prioritize the whole foods, we can revolutionize our lives by eliminating cravings, rebalancing hormones, curing digestive issues, improving medical conditions, boosting energy and immune function. Whole eating programs like the Whole30 diet present a vision of wholeness If you just follow this plan, then you will experience life as it's meant to be lived, a complete life, a well-integrated life, and even a happy life. Now, it's fine if you want to diet. Being physically healthy is good. That's good for you. But can eating the right food really give us life as it's meant to be lived? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about this question, about how we should live our lives, and God's Word is our authority. Now, the Bible does actually cast a vision of wholeness as well, a picture of what the Christian life should look like. So we're going to be looking at the letter of James today. So I invite you to turn there now, the letter of James in the New Testament. So as Eric mentioned, I'm currently pursuing a Ph.D., and writing a dissertation on the letter of James. And one piece of advice, only ask a doctoral student what they're writing their dissertation on if you want like a 20-minute conversation 
about a really obscure topic, usually. So that was free. That was a word of advice. I won't bore you with the details, but something that I'm really thankful for is that I've gotten, I've had the opportunity to spend years studying this book and being blessed by God's word. And it truly is a, a deep well that you, you can't get to the bottom of it. One of the most surprising discoveries for me as I've studied the book of James is finding that wholeness is one of the major themes of the letter. Now, that's not immediately apparent when you read it. If you've read the book of James, it's kind of like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. It seems to jump from one topic to another really quickly, but there is a there is an underlying theme of wholeness that runs through the whole thing. Uh, so wholeness, the way that I'm using it, is to, is something that's fully formed. It's whole if it's fully formed, if it's complete, if it's functioning in its intended way. So God is whole in this sense. God's word is whole in this sense, fully formed, complete. And God wants us to be whole in that way too. Fully formed, complete, functioning in our intended way. Instead of the whole 30, you could say that James is giving us the whole Christian, the whole Christian life. I want to show you briefly one important place in the letter of James where we see this idea of wholeness, just to, just to orient you toward the letter. So take a look at chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to read the, the first, or 2, 3, and 4 uh, briefly. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So the end of verse 4 there shows us that wholeness, wholeness is an intended result of persevering through trials, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And that perfect there, that's not talking about being perfectly sinless. This word gets translated as mature, in a lot of other places in the New Testament. So it's talking about attaining to, to full growth, being what, what it's supposed to be. So one of the intents here, the wholeness, is that we become what, we, what God has designed us to be. So we're going to be looking primarily at uh, a little bit later in chapter 1 of James. Our passage today is James 1, 19 through 27. James 1, 19 through 27. And in these verses, James is helping us to understand how we attain to the whole Christian life. He's going to be addressing our understanding and our perceptions and our knowledge. But he's going to give us a picture of what kind of people we should be as Christians. And we're going to see that God's word defines the good, satisfying, and godly whole Christian life, and we must understand and obey his instructions if we are to experience that life. So let's get into the text. I will read it. Follow along with me as I read aloud, please. I'll start in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We're going to explore this passage in three points. First, the nutrition of the whole Christian life. Second, the logic of the whole Christian life. And third, living the whole Christian life. The nutrition of the whole Christian life, the logic of the whole Christian life, and living the whole Christian life. So our first point then is the nutrition of the whole Christian life. Before we see what nourishes the whole Christian life, though, James exposes the false nutritional promises of sin. And he does that in verses 19 and 20. Sin makes a false promise that it will help us obtain what we want. So let's look at verse 19. James begins by saying, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is actually a command. James isn't giving us permission to be quick to hear, like, will you give me permission? Will you let me borrow your car? There's another Bible translation called the CSB that I think captures uh, the force pretty well. It translates this part as, every person should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So James is saying, you must not indulge your anger. Why not? Well, James gives the answer in verse 20. Anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. He probably could have given a few reasons, but the one that he highlights here is that anger doesn't produce what we should want, namely the righteous living that God expects of his people. That's what the righteousness of God here means. It means a righteous life pleasing to God. Anger doesn't produce a godly life. If you think about it, anger is one of those sins that promises to get things done and to produce things. But it's a false promise because it can't achieve our highest goal of living for God. I think about a recent experience that I had with, uh, with our home security company. The system was malfunctioning. It was flashing weird lights. I called the regional office and scheduled a tech to come out in two weeks. So the day comes, and no tech shows up. No phone call, nothing, no contact. A few days later, I called back, and uh, I was told, oh, I'm sorry, we can't schedule service calls from the regional office. You need to call corporate. Here, let me give you their phone number. I wish they had told me that the first time. So I called corporate, and they said, Oh, I'm sorry. We can't schedule service calls from here. Let me give you the phone number for the regional office. Now, after a few more weeks, 
The company worked things out. It got fixed. It was fine. But multiple times on these phone calls, and there were a lot of them, I was tempted to use anger to try to get what I wanted. I thought about saying something like, I demand to talk to somebody more competent than you. Now, who knows whether that would have worked. But thankfully, the Lord wouldn't let me get this Bible passage out of my head. Uh, Even if that tactic had worked and I had taken a step toward getting my alarm system fixed, I would have taken five steps back from achieving my real goal, which is a godly life. Where are you tempted to believe the false promises of sin? Maybe you're like me and you, you're tempted to get angry to try to get things done. But maybe it's different for you. Maybe your temptation is to indulge in just a little bit of boasting at work to exalt your status. Maybe your temptation is to indulge in just a little bit of gossip among the moms at church to exalt yourself. Did you see what her kids were doing after service? Friends, remember, as Paul tells us in another place, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin lies. And it tells us that if we just indulge it, if we just tap into its power, we will get what we want. But James exposes the lie here. We won't nourish a godly, whole Christian life by living on sin. What does produce the righteous and godly whole Christian life then? Well, the word therefore in verse 21 shows us that here we're going to find the answer to our question. James answers that God's grace nourishes the Christian life by saving us and enabling righteous living. God's grace is what nourishes us. We take in that nourishment by receiving his grace with humility. God's grace, you'll hear that phrase a lot in church, but I think it's helpful to slow down and define familiar terms sometimes. So God's grace is essentially the gift of himself, the gift of himself and his goodness to people that don't deserve it. Another way you could say the same thing is that God's grace is an active communication of divine blessings out of God's own fullness. Grace is God's gift that we could never earn. And it's ours because of the work of Christ. So we see God's grace in verse 21 uh, in the concepts there. The word isn't mentioned, but, uh, but it is there in the concepts. So we see God's grace in the mention of the implanted word. So take a look at verse 21 and the implanted word there. The word is the good news about Jesus. It's the Christian message, the gospel. We know this because at the end of the verse, it's the word that's able to save our souls. And we get a hint also from the fact that it's implanted into us, as the song we sang uh, mentioned. I don't know if you remember that, but it stood out to me. God implanted his word into us in salvation. It wasn't something that we cultivated ourselves. It's something that God put into us. That's God's grace too. And it's the same word of truth that was mentioned in verse 18. So if you look up at verse 18, talking about God, it says, 
of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that brought us forth, that's talking about the new birth of conversion, of salvation. So this is the word that gave us the new birth, and it saves our souls, and it came to us through God's grace. But what we do with this word really shows that God's grace is at play. Don't be deceived, friends. Grace can only be received. Don't be deceived. Grace can only be received. And we receive it here. God's grace is a gift. You don't earn a gift. You receive a gift. We know that. And God is the gift-giving God. This is another theme of the book of James. We see it in verse 17, where talking about God the Father, it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God has gifted us his grace in his word, and it's our job to receive it with meekness or humility. So receiving the implanted word then is talking about receiving God's grace into our lives. Now, while we receive the good news about Jesus when we're first saved and converted, let's not miss the fact that the book of James is actually written to Christians. It's written to people who are already following Christ. So James is telling believers, he's telling you and me, to receive anew the grace of God in Christ. Only when we are nourished by God's grace, receiving it daily, are we empowered to live righteously and put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, as James says here in verse 21. That command to put away is grounded in the command to receive. Make no mistake, we must strive for godliness. We need to make an effort to put away sin. But this effort starts in a receptive and humble posture. I have two little boys at home, one's five and one's two, and we probably have 3,000 Hot Wheels cars in, uh, in our house. Uh, my favorite kind of the Hot Wheels cars, and I think it's theirs too, are the cars that you pull backward on the ground, pullback cars that store up energy, it goes click, 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 and then you let it go and it zooms across the room. I think that's a picture of how God's grace empowers our striving for righteousness. So that little car receives the energy that's put into it like we receive God's grace. But then when you let it go, it uses its motor and its little gears to spin and zoom across the room. In a similar way, God's grace fills us up, powerfully works within us, and enables us to live righteously for God. So, If we hope to live the Christian life as it's supposed to be lived, we need to humbly receive God's grace. That's the biggest thing to take from this first point here. So how can you do that this week? For some in this room, you may need to receive God's grace for the first time ever. And if that's you, friend, I'm really glad that you're here. You're welcome here at this church. I know I speak for the pastors and all the members when I say that. But you need to know, if that's you, that currently your problem, your condition, is worse than you even realize. The sins that we've been talking about, anger, boastfulness, gossip, those are symptoms of a worse condition, deeper down, that we all have, which is rebellion against God. 
the creator, the king of the universe. We have failed to rightly honor the king of the universe, God, and we've broken his righteous commands. And as a result, as rebels against his throne, we all deserve hell, punishment, separation from his goodness and from himself for eternity. And that's heavy, and that's true. But in the same way that the problem is worse than you know, the solution is even better than you can imagine. Because God sent his own son, Jesus. God sent his own son, Jesus, not to give us a second chance, not to make salvation merely possible, but to actually accomplish everything that needed to be done to save us, so to bring us back to God. He rose from the dead. He died on the cross for our punishment, rose from the dead so that we could be healed and forgiven and restored to God forever. And he did that. Jesus did that because God loves us. That's the best news in the world. And God invites you, friend, today. He's inviting you right now through these words to turn away from your sin, to ask him to forgive you and to trust in Christ. I would be happy to talk with you more about that after the service. I know that any of the pastors here would be happy to talk about that with you more too. But I want to encourage you, friend, humbly receive the grace of God. Let today be the day because his hand is stretched out to you in mercy today. Receive his grace. Those of us who are already Christians need to hear this message too. We need to receive God's grace and be nourished by it. The Christian life involves humble and daily dependence on God's grace. So let me ask you, are you daily asking for God's grace, his help in your fight against sin? Are you daily praying to him and asking for help? Are you daily meditating on his word through reading, through memorizing, through discussing it with other believers? We Christians need to make sure that we are drawing from the wells of God's grace in our daily lives too. You know, godliness or a godly life doesn't mean that you attain to some level of holiness and then you don't need to depend on God as much. It's like, I've become holy enough, I can just handle this on my own. That is totally incorrect. The more that you grow with the Lord, the more that you realize just how sinful you are, the more that you realize that for every good spiritual motion in your heart, you depend on the Lord. It's the result of his grace. So we need to daily, daily, daily go to, go to the wells of grace that the Lord has for us. We cannot live that whole Christian life, that righteous, godly life that we want to live apart from God's grace daily. So in verses 19 through 21, we see that the whole Christian life is nourished by receiving God's grace. God's grace saves us from sin and death. It empowers us to do what sin can't, which is to live a righteous life that's pleasing to God. So that brings us to the second section of this passage, which is the logic of the whole Christian life, the logic of the whole Christian life in verses 22 through 25. 
Every lifestyle has a logic to it. For the Whole30 diet, the logic is if you only eat real foods and things with recognizable, pronounceable ingredients, then you'll do well. You'll have a healthy life. But you really begin to excel at a certain lifestyle when you've internalized it into your brain, when you don't have to go look up the rules every time, but that's just the way that you live. Similarly, there is a logic to the Christian life as well, and we see that in this passage. Here's the logic of the Christian life. We hear God's word, and we obey it. We hear God's word, and we obey it. However, it's possible to apparently live the Christian life, but to live in such a way that actually contradicts that logic. So we see the wrong way of living the Christian life in verses 22 through 24. This person who only hears but does not obey God's word is both self-deceived and foolish, contradicting the logic of the Christian life and cannot live the whole Christian life that we want to live. How is the person who only hears but does not obey self-deceived? Well, this person thinks that simply hearing God's message has some merit when it doesn't. They divide obedience from hearing when you shouldn't separate the two. But this is like somebody who says, I'm on the Whole30 diet, but what they mean by that is they've just read the website a lot and they haven't changed their lives. That person isn't on the Whole30 So don't deceive yourself, friends. If you think that God will look kindly on your church attendance, for example, while inwardly you don't repent of your sin, you don't open yourself up to him, you're wrong. You may deceive other people, and you're deceiving yourself, but you're not deceiving God. The next two verses use a picture, a word picture, to show how foolish this way of thinking truly is, where you just hear God's word, but you don't do anything about it. The person who hears God's word but does not obey is foolish because they're exposed to God's word, but they fail to benefit from it in the ways that are truly necessary. Notice that in verse 23, the first word, it begins with the word for. Yeah, for. So that shows us that it's explaining It's explaining why the one who listens is self-deceived. In this image, the mirror is the word of God. So you see this from the way that James sets up the parallels in verse 23. He says, a man hearing the word is like a man looking in a mirror. So that person in the example looks intently at the mirror. Maybe he fixed his hair. Maybe he cleaned up his face. Maybe he shaved. But he walked away and he forgot what he looked like. So he benefited from the mirror maybe a little bit, but he failed to get the real benefit of the mirror, which is knowledge of himself. A person who hears the word but does not obey it may hear it gladly. But this person is missing the main thing. God's word is not intended merely to inform us, but to transform us. God's word is intended to not only inform us, but transform us. James will later say that if you're only informed but not transformed, if your faith doesn't work itself out in deeds, your faith is the equivalent to the faith of demons. In chapter 2, verse 19, James says, You believe that God is one. 
which is an essential monotheistic one God belief. He said, if you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that. But they don't obey God. So don't be deceived, friends. Demonic faith does not save us. Not only that, though, a person who only hears and does not obey is missing out. Maybe that's surprising to you, uh, but merely hearing the word is not better than obeying. The person who only hears but does not obey is missing out on the good that could be theirs through humble obedience to God's word. And we see this in verse 25. James invites us to a better way here. The person who hears and does the word will live the whole Christian life in the doing, in the process of obeying the word. This is the logic of the whole Christian life. But wait a minute. Look at verse 25. Something's changed. Did you notice? Did you notice how James changed the way that he's talking about the word? In verse 22, it was just the word. But here it is the perfect law, the law of liberty. This new description fills out fills out what God's word is like, and it helps us to understand how we can obey the word and do the word. It's perfect in a similar sense to chapter 1, verse 4 that we read at the beginning when scripture said that we are to become perfect and complete. It's actually the same Greek word back there behind the translation. So what it's saying here is that God's word is whole and complete. It has everything that we need. It's lacking in nothing that we need for a godly life. It's a law. Maybe instruction is another good word there. It's a law or instruction because God's word teaches us how to live. And then when we live God's way, following his instructions, we find liberty, true freedom from obeying God. That description of God's word invites us into obedience, doesn't it? Follow God's perfect whole instruction and find freedom, find life. And that fits the logic. That fits the logic of the whole Christian life nourished by God's grace. But James goes further in this verse, actually, and he tells us the outcome of the logic. James says that the hearer and doer will be blessed in his doing as he obeys God's word. It's really important for us to understand this word blessed. So there are actually two different Greek words that get translated into English as blessed. So one of them is eulogatos, and it's used when God is blessing somebody with gifts. For example, when we talk about God blessing Abraham, I will bless you and make you into a great nation. When we use the word blessed these days, it usually matches that meaning. If you're on social media, maybe you've seen people write hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. I'm so glad that I get to have two weeks of vacation on the beach or something like that. They're talking about the good things that they get to enjoy. Now, if you've done that, that's fine. No worries there. But we can't lump all of the blessedness in Scripture under that framework. Because if we do, we're going to misunderstand very important sections of the Bible. The other word translated as blessed is makarios. Makarios. And that's the one that's used here in James 1.25. However, it's more famously used in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus isn't saying that the poor in spirit will get gifts in the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. Actually, you could translate makarios as happy. You could translate it with the word happy. So you could translate that beatitude as happy are the poor in spirit. 150 years ago, English speakers knew this. We still used the, bless, uh, the word blessed or blessed to mean happy. And it occurs in an old song that you may know. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, etc. That song is saying how truly joyful I am that I have assurance of my salvation. How truly joyful I am to know Jesus. Now, we're not talking about fleeting emotions. We're not talking about some version of the prosperity gospel, if you've heard of that. We're talking about true, deep, lasting joy. In fact, makarios, this Greek word, was used in the Bible and in the wider world back then, Greek poets and philosophers and Romans and all of that, when they talked about the good life, the happy life, the life that everybody wants to live, the life worth living. They used this word in those contexts. And the word blessed in James 1.25 matches this second meaning. So we could paraphrase this part of the verse this way. This person will be living the good life as he obeys God. That insight blew my mind when I first came to understand it. God tells us how to live a good and satisfying and godly and happy life here and now. He doesn't just care about heaven. He cares about here and now too. Do you realize that almost every movement or organization or company or commercial is trying to sell you an alternative vision of the good life? We see this, in, this logic in the transgender movement that has arisen in the last few years. It promises you can live the good life if you're able to express your inner desires however you want. You can have the good life if you can make your body conform to those inner desires. And you can have the good life. You can be happy if, you, if society will affirm those decisions. That's how you have a happy life, a life worth living. But we don't need to look to ideologies to find these alternative visions of the good life. We need look no further than Apple computer advertisements which implicitly promise that if you live completely in their ecosystem with a MacBook, an iPhone, an iPad, an Apple Watch, and AirPods, you will experience a technological utopia where life is just better and easier and happier, and there's more dancing, too. But beer commercials do the same thing. If you watch the Super Bowl, the beer commercial, the stereotypical couple sitting in folding chairs on the beach, looking out at the ocean... That's a vision of the good life, too. Drink this beer, you can have this happy life. But these are all counterfeit visions of the good life. Hey, it's fine if you, if you want an iPhone, I have an iPhone. But these are not the good life. Unhindered self-expression, comfort and vacations, seamless productivity are not the definition of the good life. God, as the creator of humans and the universe, is the one who is qualified to tell us what the good life is. You know why? He designed us, and he designed the universe, and he made the universe in such a way that humans should find their most satisfying good life. How? Verse 25. 
in the doing, we find the good life, the life as God intended it to be lived, in the doing, as we obey God's word. The old song had it right. I'm going to sing again. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Seeing God's vision for the good life will turn your perspective upside down if you let it. So often we are held captive to a competing vision of the good life and we don't even realize it. So where have you adopted the logic of one of these competing visions? What is it in your life that says things are going really well? Or what is the goal that you are trying to attain to? Is it coming from God's word? Or is it coming from a company, an ideology, a commercial? God says that you discover true joy in a simple life of hearing his word and obeying it. And that means you can experience the good life no matter what city you're living in, no matter what you're doing for work. Even if you're suffering right now with a chronic ailment of some kind, you can experience the good life, life as God has intended it to be lived now. If you're living faithfully, if you're trying to live faithfully, if you're depending on his grace and you're living by faith, this is the logic of the whole Christian life. The one who not only hears God's word but strives to obey the perfect law of liberty will find the whole Christian life. So how are you going to strive to obey God's word this week? That decision to obey God is, it's not, I mean, there are, there are big aspects of it where you just say, I'm going to follow God. But a lot of times, it's just lots of little, little decisions that happen each and every day. So even what's a little decision that you can make to follow God's word more this week than you did last week? You could write down, you could write down one thing that you want to apply from the sermon today, for example, or one thing that you want to meditate on from your Bible reading. But this is, this is a way that we can take steps toward being more faithful doers of the word and not just hearers. This brings us to the final section of James's exhortation in verses 26 and 27, where he gives us some guidelines for living the whole Christian life. And here he's going to get very practical. He's going to show us what does doing the word look like. James says that it involves self-control, even in speech, watchful care over the needy, and prioritizing holiness and faithfulness to God. Now, we'll repeat those. We're going to go through each of them in turn. So first, James points to self-control in verse 26 as a practical dimension of the whole Christian life, but he does it by addressing a specific issue, speech. In verse 26, we're talking about somebody who thinks that he's religious. So don't get tripped up by that word. Sometimes that's a bad word in our circles. We don't want to be religious. We want to be spiritual. Or even among Christians, you know, we'll say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. That's true. But what we mean here uh, in terms of religion is just being pious or worshipful. That's what's going on here. So this person thinks that he's fulfilling his obligations to God. It means that he's, he thinks he's worshiping God in the right way, that he's a worshipful person. So he thinks he's religious and worshipful, but he does not bridle 
his tongue. A bridle is the headgear that you put on a horse. It's where you attach the bit and the reins, and that's how you control where the horse goes. So this person doesn't rein in his speech. You could say that he has a galloping tongue. Now, I live in Kentucky, and if you don't know, that is the home of the most exciting two minutes in sports. You know what that is? The Kentucky Derby, a horse race, and really it is two minutes long. It only takes two minutes for those horses to gallop all the way around Churchill Downs, but our tongues can gallop into sin so much faster than that, can't they? Maybe you're quick to criticize. Maybe you use coarse language. Maybe you grumble. Maybe you gossip. Later in chapter 3, James is going to call the tongue a world of unrighteousness set on fire by hell. That's quite a statement. James exposes the truth about this person. One who fails to bridle his tongue is not religious. He's self-deceived. But James goes even further. He says this person's unbridled tongue and lack of self-control show that his religion is what? Worthless. Worthless. It's vain, empty, hollow. Who wants to have worthless worship? Nobody. You may be wondering, is James saying that if you struggle with speech or with self-control that you're not a Christian? No. That's not what he's saying. But let's be clear. If you are truly struggling with sin, there will be evidence of a struggle. If you're truly struggling, there will be evidence of a struggle. You're trying to get that bridle on your galloping tongue, but it gets shaken off sometimes. James is not talking about you, if that's you. He's talking about the person who doesn't even care to try to put on the bridle or who only cares to put on the bridle when others are watching then James is talking about you. God considers self-control, especially regarding what we say, as essential to the whole Christian life. Our social media-drenched culture, with all of its explainers and hot takes, encourages us to be unhindered and to let our tongue gallop away crazily. But the Lord cares what we say, and he cares what we say on social media too. Our speech is an essential aspect of how we live the whole Christian life that will prove whether God is truly our Father. That's what this, that's what this verse says. Well, if lack of self-control, if lack of self-control over your speech exposes false religion, then what demonstrates true religion and a true worshiper of God? And we find that in the final verse here, verse 27. James uses the words pure and undefiled. That should make us think of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, actually. He's going to tell us what our New Testament offerings look like, and they connect to the theme of wholeness too. So what is pure and undefiled whole worship of God? What does that look like? James gives two answers. He could have given others, but I'm kind of surprised by the ones that he chooses. Maybe you will be too. The first surefire indication of a religious life, a godly life, is watchful care over the needy widows and orphans. This word visit that's used here, that includes the idea of going to visit them, but it's not limited to that. Actually, this is the word used in the Old Testament for when God would come and visit his people in salvation and rescue them. 
So it's really this bigger idea of watchful care and taking care of the needy, particularly widows and orphans. They were, they were the most vulnerable in ancient society. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't any kind of, uh, you know, social, social help program in the, in the Roman Empire, for example. These, uh, widows and orphans were most liable to be oppressed back then. They were the neediest of the needy. Here, James makes care for the needy a litmus test for the true worshiper of God. This challenges us in a couple of ways. I know that Zoe Church is a church that cares about truth and cares about doctrine. But that is so important. But we need to remember that mercy ministries are not inherently a distraction from the gospel. But mercy ministries are part of a full, fleshed-out vision of the Christian life. That's gospel work, too, in a sense. And we don't want to neglect them. But on the individual level, this this litmus test challenges each of us individually to slow down and care for the needy because it's so easy in our fast-paced, efficiency-obsessed world to justify ignoring people who are needy, people who might inconvenience us. But I'm thankful. I've received such a good example of care for the needy at my church back in Louisville, Third uh, Avenue Baptist Church, I've never heard of a church that has a deacon of foster care, but the church created a diaconate of foster care because there were so many people in the church that wanted to get involved in fostering and adopting. And that's such a a beautiful picture of the love of God. Another litmus test for true religion is personal holiness and faithfulness to God. This word unstained in verse 27 That was also used of sacrifices, but here it's used metaphorically to refer to our moral conduct. We can be metaphorically stained by the things that we do in the world, by sins in which we participate. Every time a graphic new TV show or movie comes out, you're going to find articles written on Christian websites arguing one way or the other about whether Christians should watch that program, right? That's a question that you should ask. That that is worthy of discussion. But there should be some things that you would never watch because you're a Christian. There has to be a line somewhere. Because if there's no line for you, you just watch anything, it, it seems that you don't realize that worldly things could stain you and could defile your worship of God, like it says in verse 27. In the letter of James, this phrase, the world, represents the things that are opposite of God. He uses it very specifically that way. Later in chapter 4, verse 4, James says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's not saying you can't have non-Christian friends or can't watch TV or anything like that. But it is saying that you can't embrace ideas or practices that by their very nature are opposite of what God wants and God's character. So what's opposite of God's character? An example of this might be something that glorifies sin. You can't embrace something that glorifies sin or that glorifies sin in such a way to make you desire sin or to wish that God's law wasn't there or something like that. Such a thing would probably stain you in the sense that James is talking about. So even though it might make us seem uncool, we should be in the habit of asking ourselves, 
Might this or that participation in the world stain my Christian life and defile my worship of God? We need to have that category. We need to ask that question. So to sum up this final point, James gives us three very practical ways that we can live out the whole Christian life. To exercise self-control, especially in our speech, to care for the needy, and to prioritize holiness and faithfulness to him. Just to bring it back to where we started, can whole eating and the whole 30 diet really eliminate cravings, rebalance hormones, and cure digestive issues? Maybe. But can they give us wholeness and the good life? Surely not. Surely not. The whole Christian life is nourished as we receive God's grace, and it finds joy and the good life in hearing God's word and obeying it. Will you bow your heads with me as we, as we close in prayer and ask for more of God's grace? Lord, I thank you for your word. We praise you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to save us and to bring us from the darkness to the light. We're saved by your grace, nourished by your grace, empowered by your grace. And so we ask you to give us more grace, more of your goodness, more of yourself, so that we can live whole Christian lives in joyful, faithful, and steadfast service to you. Please do that for my brothers and sisters and my friends here in attendance. Do that for me. Lord, we pray this to your glory through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.